All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the special Sunday morning edition of COVID Chat. Here we talk about the tangential and contiguous issues surrounding the SARS COVID 2, otherwise known as the COVID 19 virus. This is the only place where you can have an unfiltered and uncensored conversation about the impacts of the pandemic. I'm your host, Mario Christie. And I'm your host, Eleanor Terrellon. We are now living in Corona time. And the only way our nation can ensure survival is for us to get with the program. COVID-19 isn't going anywhere. It will be a defining factor in our lives and livelihoods for the foreseeable future. Though our critical public health concern, COVID-19 is not just a public health issue. It is a social, economic, and environmental issue. COVID Chat is a program that will delve into all these issues and impacts caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as our national response. The question is, how will we address our national and global sustainability needs during this time? This initiative is powered by the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. We're a youth affiliate of the Jamaica Climate Change Advisory Board, and we're doing this in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited, the Caribbean's leading environmental consultancy firm. We want to welcome everyone to the discussion. Thank you again for joining us. Please share with us on social media using the hashtags, hashtag COVID chat, hashtag Corona time, and hashtag social inclusion. Don't forget to follow us at our footprint JA on Twitter and Instagram, and at ESL Caribbean on Twitter, and at Envirosol on Instagram. This week, our focus will be on the most important component of our economy, the people. There is no society without people. And to help us understand the extent to which COVID has impacted our citizens, we have some extra special guests with us this, this week. We have Jodian Quarry, a human rights and environmental lawyer. We also have with us Glenroy Murray, who is a human rights advocate and law extraordinaire. And we have Aisha Constable, founder of YPACCJA, that's YPACJA, and our very own Jamaican ecofeminist. Thank you all for joining us on this special chat today. Thanks for having us. Um, right, so at this point, I'm just going to ask each of you to just share with our listeners a little bit about what you do, and I'm going to ask Aisha to start. Let's hope you'd have gone in the order in which you introduced you, um, said our so names. I'm, I'm very um, interested in YPAC, so tell me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so YPAC is Young People for Action on Climate Change. Um, it's a recent initiative between myself and uh, Janelle Tomlinson who some of you would be familiar with. Um, it's just one of the things I've managed to pull off in recent times um, as part of the greater focus on climate change and youth engagement. Um, another thing that we've done recently with Eleanor's involvement, of course, is the launch of an initiative that targets primarily young women and that's um, Girls Care, Girls for Climate Action, Resilience and Empowerment. Um, and I have a more substantive role um, outside of my voluntary efforts. Um, I now serve as the National Adaptation Planning Coordinator um, for Climate Change Planning in Dominica, Dominica and Antigua, Antigua and Barbuda. Um, and I'll, I'll be taking up that post in the spirit of full disclosure um, <laughs> as of August 16th. So I'll be um, stepping away um, from there for a little bit. Um, and so the, the big, the broad focus of, of my work, academic research, um, has been on climate change. But with my own kind of spin on it, looking largely on gender issues, women's issues, girls, um, wanting to ensure that 
you know, in terms of any planning, any legislative reform, any um, meaningful efforts to, to stem and build resilience that we are targeting some of the most vulnerable people um, as it relates to climate change. And I think this here conversation fits um, perfectly into that um, narrative and, and I'm very excited to be a part of the panel. Great. Yeah, right. Uh, hi, thanks again for having me. I um, really appreciate this conversation um, and the kind of the wide remit of it, um, especially because, well, um, as you mentioned, Mario, I am a human rights activist. I work with JFLAG. I'm the director of strategy and impact there. Um, and a lot, a lot of my work is focusing broadly on the ways in which laws affect marginalized communities, specifically the LGBTQ community. Um, and it is Pride. Um, currently, now we're celebrating Pride. And I think it's a useful opportunity to kind of get us to think about how different communities are oftentimes doubly affected by these kinds of issues, um, which is something that is oftentimes missed from the conversation. Um, when we talk about the impact of whether it is climate change or um, disasters on um, the human population. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Lenore. Jody? Hi, I'm Jody Ann Quarry. Um, as was introduced earlier, I'm a human rights and environmental attorney. My work ranges from dealing with issues of out-and-out human rights, that is, what it is that affects men, women, boys, and girls, and the differentiated impacts. Then we spoke about groups being multiple, having multiple impacts. Well, COVID-19, if nothing else, has exposed, like never before, particular groups that have had serious disadvantages and how those have been exacerbated during a global crisis and making us realize maybe for the first time just how vulnerable and on the edge those groups were but even groups that thought they were not vulnerable and on the edge have now been exposed to levels of vulnerability they may not have exp experienced before. I've worked at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, I've been at the Office of the High Commissioner of the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights uh, at the United Nations, uh, carrying courts of justice, working on human rights cases, uh, and now a member of the media. So every single day I'm exposed to COVID stories of various groups and get to see those differentiated impacts, but also get to see if government policy and global um, community work is getting us to the place where we can deal with it. As uh, Mario said, it's something we'll be dealing with for quite some time. And I've already started work with uh, the World Bank, for example, and the Inter-American Commission on seeing how the impacts of COVID-19 can be mitigated, especially for small island developing states like ours. Thank you. Thank you all to our guests. Um, we really appreciate you joining us again, and we're looking forward to a very insightful discussion. Just a reminder to our audience here on Zoom and on our Facebook page, this is an interactive conversation. So we encourage you to join in with comments or questions at any time during the chat. You can do this by typing directly into the chat box on Zoom or chat on Facebook, on Facebook Live, or you can use the raise hand feature in Zoom to pose your questions directly to one of our presenters. Please remember to keep our, your questions short and spicy. We're only here till 12.30, and we want the opportunity to hear from everyone. And just a reminder to silence, if you're gonna um, unmute your mic, just silence your phones or any background noise so it doesn't interfere with the recording. All right, thank you, Eleanor, and thank you again to our guests. So let's get to it. As I started out by saying, there is no society without people. 
And for those of, those of us who have never thought about what a society is, it can be simply defined as a group of individuals who are involved in persistent social interaction. Or if you want to get more technical, we can define as a large group of people sharing the same spatial or social territory, and this is typically subject to the same political authority or dominant culture expectation. And that was from the internet, so I did not make it up. Now, according to the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs, the COVID-19 outbreak affects all segments of the population and is particularly detrimental to members of those social groups in the most vulnerable situations. It continues to affect populations, including people living in poverty situations, older people, persons with disabilities, youth, and indigenous people. Early evidence indicates that the health and economic impacts of the virus are being borne disproportionately by poor people. For example, homeless people, because they may be unable to safely shelter in place, are highly exposed to the dangers of the virus. People without access to running water, refugees, migrants, or displaced persons also stand to suffer disproportionately both from the pandemic and its aftermath. Whether due to limited movement, fewer employment opportunities, or increased xenophobia. If not properly addressed through policy and social crisis, sorry, the social crisis created by the COVID-19 pandemic may also increase inequality, exclusion, discrimination, and global employment in the medium and long term. That's a mouthful. So we want to start off the conversation um, with this question um, in, based on what's happening since the, the start of the pandemic here in Jamaica. Many of our people are of the impression that our leaders see the economy as being more important than our citizens. How can we bridge what seems like a communication or information gap so we are all on the same page, without, on the same page about the true impact of COVID-19 on the Jamaican people? And I'm throwing this out to Jodian and, and Aisha. Aisha, you want to go first? Um, I, yeah, I can. I just to, to just pick up on one of the things you said just now, um, one of the last statements that you read, which said um, the pandemic may um, exacerbate inequality. And I, I, I'm going to suppose that that was written a little while ago because I think by now it's confirmed that it has and will worsen as, as we move forward in terms of the disparity um, mm -hmm. globally and that polarization um, of incomes. Um, in the Jamaican context, we, we've also seen that at play. And, and the, the question of poverty, certainly, and, and continued impoverishment of certain social groups, of course, we've seen that. Um, I think the tourism sector comes to mind if we talk about people and, and economy. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the numbers of persons within that sector who, who would have been laid off um, or, or, you know, made unemployed um, periodically as a result of the pandemic. And then the question around the reopening of that sector and, you know, just what in, in some of us minds at least is a show of, you know, donkey on the part of our government, a show of apathy as it relates to the, the health and overall well-being of, of, of persons within that sector. And I, I know Marianne and myself, I'm not sure if it's this particular question, but just a little bit of back and forth that we had on Twitter regarding who constitutes the economy and people being at the center of the economy. Mm -hmm. Because in effect, if, if everybody's sick and dead off, the economy cannot run itself. It's people who make the economy run. And so it's one of the questions that we'll continue to, to banter about because wherein, as we recognize that 
people need incomes to survive, the, the longer term impact. And I think one of the things that we have wanted, we would have wanted to see was even where we have, though they decided to reopen and to, you know, um, invite foreigners and tourists into the country, was that show of awareness and acceptance of the value of people's lives. Um, I don't think that was at the center of the conversation. Um, you cannot make these decisions without showing, and I, and I want to say, even if it's just for show, to show that you understand the implications of these actions on people who constitute the economy. Thanks, Aisha. Anything to add to that, Julian? Uh, I think uh, there is... Uh, and has been a tension for many people with the discussion about human rights uh, and uh, the impacts of COVID-19 and the economic impacts of COVID-19. As Aisha said, it's very, very hard to separate the two of them. People eat, people need to feel productive, people need to send their children to school, and you can't then say that you have a human right to education, for example, and then not make it real by not allowing parents to be able to send their children to school or make adequate provisions for that. You can't say there's a right to water and then indicate to individuals that, wow, um, you won't be able to get water because whatever trucking services needed to come to you won't be able to work out. But there has been, I think, a narrative that has pulled us in from thinking of it as a holistic problem to it being two camps. The camp of the people saying, it is a health crisis and it should be primarily a health issue and that mm -hmm. those in healthcare should lead on this issue. And then it's pulled into another camp that has said, this is primarily an economic issue and we're going to have to, and that's a narrative that we're hearing right now, live with COVID. With some groups seeing that they have been so significantly financially impacted by the shutdowns, especially those in the entertainment industry, for example, that live on irregular incomes, that they cannot survive if we continue to make it a health only strategy. I think mm -hmm. the United Nations a few months ago near the beginning of the pandemic had put out a guidance by Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, indicating that we need to stop that, that, that very dualistic thinking, that very um, separatist thinking of it being a one or the other situation. And so the narrative must be now, if COVID-19, as the head of the, the World Health Organization has said, is something that we will live with the impacts of for decades to come. Decades. Now, just next year. And I think for many people, that's the struggle of COVID-19, that they thought it was going to be short term, that they thought it was going to be a couple months, that they were willing to hold out until September, carnival was going to come back in October, you can't just, you know, get your body ready again. You were mentally not prepared for this to be a long-term situation. And so for many of the people who are impacted by COVID-19, they cannot have an economy-only conversation, but people are dying. And so what it is, is, it needs to be a narrative that says, how do we safely make it through COVID-19? How do we safely make it through working out these issues? And what is considered to be acceptable risk for us? When people go back to work, when people go back out, mm -hmm. people will die. What is a threshold that we have as acceptable risk? And will that challenge the very foundations of the human rights principles that we work with now? Because I think, Jody, exactly what you're saying is that matter of the indivisibility of these rights and not um, deciding, you know, because 
of, of the bigger picture in terms of the economic needs that that trumps the other rights and the other needs of the population. I thought you were going to respond to, to Aisha, Judy. No, well, I, 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 it, it, it doesn't. But at the same time, it's very difficult for you to say to me that I am to go out to work and I may bring something home to my grandmother that may kill her. And it's very difficult for you to say to me as well, I cannot go out to work, but rent is due and I can't pay it. Yeah. It's very difficult for you to explain to somebody why they shouldn't just run the risk. Mm -hmm. and do this and i don't think that we have as a national narrative especially here in jamaica but i've watched this replicated across the globe of something that says what do we then do mm -hmm. because remember issues like this if it's social are inherently political people organize themselves in particular ways and we have watched it become political to a degree that does not assist us in making some of the best smartest healthiest safest decisions for everyone going out into the world so absolutely with i with regard to us taking a look and seeing how we navigate that space between it being a human concern, a social concern, and recognizing that, quoting her, people them are dead off if they're not going to There's a, there's a, there's a practical reason that COVID-19, just like other social issues that we've been working on for quite some time, exacerbates the real issues that human rights advocates have been working on for decades. Yeah. And my last point on this, though, um, Mario can invite Gary into the conversation. Um, just to remind us of that clip um, early on when, when, when the lockdown had, had started, of, it was a downtown scene and there was a gentleman with a cart. I don't know if you remember that on the news. And people are saying, you know, you're not social distancing, you're not on quarantine. And he said, um, man, I'm dead every day. If, if me not do this, me I go dead. If me not hustle, me I go dead. You know, and I think people were very um, aggravated by that. Like, I saw poor people think. But I think people fail to recognize that man, if go to the street and hustle daily and put themselves at risk, mm -hmm to ensure that you know mouths can be fed and that that's a real reality and i think if you're divorced from that experience and divorced from the reality of people who live that life then you come off as sounding very hearty when you say people just lock down and and, and um you know adjust and, and live within the parameters of the, the, the rules that the government have put in place to quarantine perfectly agree aisha anything to add general i mean so i want to um kind of complicate even the the false dichotomy that has been created between um, the, the kind of public health and the economic concerns. Mm -hmm. because, like we create that false dichotomy um, in such a way that we, we don't even investigate the very notions of the economic and the public health. So the public health has costs and economic considerations from the, from the get-go that will drive the ability of a government, for example, to even lead a kind of public health response. How does that work where there isn't enough finances to support um, a public health response? And, and, and how does private sector, um, private medical practices jump in? So I, I think about immediately, even the unfortunate situation with Jodianne and how she passed because of how a private medical facility just wasn't able and, and, and prepared to respond to COVID. And then on the other side, I'm also thinking about how economics by its, um, the economic considerations by themselves are also human considerations, they're also social considerations, because as we've, we've pointed out, a big part of the economy is the human and how a human being is most productive 
um, when they're at their best physically, emotionally, psychologically. And, and I think a lot of times how policies are developed, we think about the economy devoid of human beings. And I think it's how neoliberalism teaches us to always be in a productive mode and all, almost always think about ourselves and other people as people who must be productive to have value. And so mm -hmm. when we talk about economic considerations, we're not thinking about the human elements of things. So even in that very dichotomy, there are all these problems about, um, the, the dichotomy itself is limiting by virtue of how we've defined the very issues that we, the very camps that we split things into and it makes us miss so much so um from the get-go it shouldn't be a consideration of well it, it should be led by public health it should be led by economic considerations there's so many other elements of how do you respond to a crisis that must come on board and i think what oftentimes happen whatever the crisis is is that we never do like Jody, um, Jody says a holistic response and we never try to kind of look at um, well, how does this crisis expose the fact that we've never uh, comprehensively addressed social services within this country, right? And so even when we're now developing a response to a crisis, we still have not holistically considered the failings of the social services because what will happen is that another, another pandemic will happen, another, um, God forbid, an earthquake, uh, a, a severe hurricane like Gilbert or Ivan. One of those are bound to happen, is bound to happen again. And we're going to be having the same conversation because we, we're not thinking of these things in that kind of complex way that we ought to be thinking of it in. Um, in. And I think it's also because we've taught ourselves to divorce all the complexities of either camp that we're talking about. Um, if I may, um, Mario, just kind of picking up on that point of the economy and what constitutes the formal economy, um, kind of linking it to the, the women's um, aspect of the debate. Remember earlier, one of the things that we agreed and um, a lot of um, you know, feminist papers eventually expanded on that discussion to say that you know, when people talked about the economy and COVID, they said the economy had been halted, you know, it had, had come to a standstill. And, and, and feminist um, researchers and advocates were keen to point out that the economy not stall because women continue to do what we've always done, the, the unpaid work that drives the economy, that allows some men to continue to go out, and even women in some instances, to, to go out and be a part of the formal economy. All of that which supports the formal economy is still going on. But because of how we view um, capitalism and, and what is the formal economy, that never gets the respect it deserves. And so, you know, just reminding us, um, as you would have said too, Glenroy, that the economy itself and what women do to support that continues to, to the, those wheels are spinning, spinning so fast they're about to fall off right now because women have had it. You know, um, I saw a paper recently which said that 2020, the COVID, is going to be the death of the working mother. And that that's not just women who are going out to work in formal spaces, but women who are at home having to do 10 times more than they would have done pre-COVID. All right, if we're going to play the daisy chain, then Mario, if you would just then allow me to jump on to what Aisha said, because it's not just women who are working as working mothers, but it's also the disproportionate impact on women overall. So women's work tends to be the kind of more supportive work roles. And those tended to be housekeepers. Those tended to be persons who worked in laundries. Those tend to be persons who are out hustling. And those were the first sets of people who were impacted. 
groups that we don't hear talked about as much, but I'm very passionate about our sex workers who at the very beginning of the pandemic had indicated that they were one of the, they were the first group I saw that indicated that they were taking significant steps to stem the spread of COVID-19. Now, people were laughing when they heard the article, but this is a set of people who understood how any sort of um, breakdown in people being able to go outside impacted their income significantly. And one of them was a story of a Sorry, woman. Yes. I was, I was muted a while ago. I was trying to stop it because I'm actually going to get into that a little bit later. Okay. So I want to, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, well, it was on mute. So I never did hear, man. Yeah, I, re I realized. Yes, yes, I like, yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah. all right. So I, I want to just finish this, this whole, um, this, this talk about how we would have approached responding to the, the economic situation that would have been faced by many of us um, here in Jamaica, based on the fact that our economy is largely informal and those, as you've just pointed out before I talked to Jody, that those are the people who would have been impacted at the get-go. Many of us would have been in a, in this, in a sort of job that was able to push through to, to give us, continue giving us a salary and many of us would have had savings, but what about those people who didn't have it? So let's just look quickly on the stimulus package that was launched during COVID um, for unemployed individuals and um, micro, small to medium enterprises. What is it um, do we need to do? And I want to get that out um, in no uncertain terms to ensure that when the next disaster happens, because then Roy said it a while ago, and I'm sure we are all aware, more is coming. Climate change is at our door. If it's not another, if it's a natural disaster, it's going to be another. Um, pandemic, what do we need to do to ensure that our people, those who are living on the fringes, are in a better place so that they can weather that storm when it comes? And I'm going to throw that out to Glenroy and, and Aisha. Uh, well, for me, twofold. at a policy level, um, there's a I mean, when we, when we discuss human rights, we always um, we have a tendency to stop at civil and political rights, the right to vote and, mm -hmm. you know, movement, freedom from discrimination, freedom of speech, all very important and critical for our democracy. But we ha there has been scant regard for economic, social, and cultural rights. And for me, one that's very important to me, well, couple that are very important to me are the ones that are hardly ever discussed, um, which are the right to work, safe uh, and safe and favorable conditions of work um, attached to that, and the right to social security. And so for me, the broader conversation need to have been what was the position of people before pre-COVID? And so when we talk about even savings and how long we can shut down an economy for, my first thought is my own mother. Um, luckily, she was able, um, she, she didn't lose her job and she wasn't laid off, so she was able to continue to support her family. Mm -hmm. Of course, it had an impact, another type of impact on her. But however, are you guys hearing it? Yes. There's some there's some feedback, Glenroy. There's that sure. Okay. Might have to to change my location. Give me a second. If you don't mind, Mario, I could just pick up until Glenroy resettles. Um, right. So. Um, the stimulus package, I think the, the effort um, in its totality was commendable on the part of the government. Uh, you know, um, broad economic situation being what it is, 
um, it was it was commendable for the most part to see them initiate this response and and try to um, you know put something in place for the most vulnerable. I, I can speak specifically though to domestic workers and what that meant for them because there are people who we know are vulnerable who could not tap into that benefit for other reasons. So domestic workers in particular could not tap into it because they do not have the requisite. Um, institutional arrangement structures in place. So they were unable to present the NIS registration information that was needed. They wouldn't have had the kind of records because it's still very much an informal um, sector or, or group of work, um, household workers that, you know, they don't register, they don't have anything, pay slips and whatnot that would um, accommodate them being able to tap into this uh, facility. And so despite it just being, well, I don't want to say just, but although it was $10,000, this was $10,000 that domestic workers did need. I was in touch with the head of the domestic workers union here in Jamaica, Shirley Price, um, because I have a few colleagues who work in a funding entity in, based in New York. And I, I reached out to her to say, hey, Menonimus are suffer. how can we help? Um, so I spent the greater part of a week writing a proposal that has been, been funded by this entity, organization, Open Society, um, foundation in new york but the the real remit of that pr proposal now is to ensure that in the face of another crisis domestic workers can access this kind of support so the aim is on formalizing the sector so they'll get nis benefits they'll be able to go into the tax office and pay um, the, their taxes and that kind of thing because you would have also seen the news reports which featured some domestic workers talking about their plight um, you know just kids hungry can't eat because early on in the pandemic they were sent home because you know people didn't want domestic workers coming to their households but even then we saw a kind of dynamic where gardeners who are primarily men were allowed to go to work because it's considered you know more of a distance um, engagement and domestic mm -hmm. workers who are primarily women were not allowed to go in and so that was a stark you know distinction in terms of how that played out but I think their the, their experience during the pandemic is is was an eye opener for a lot of people and one of the things that the question you asked is how do we ensure that we stave off similar impacts in future there is some legislative and institutional reform that needs to take place um and i know that that's not just the case that's not just with domestic workers but and i think their example and their experience a classic example for other informal sectors going forward so that formalization of the working experience for these groups of persons is going to be something critical Right. Thanks, Aisha. Glenn, I can go ahead. Yeah, so apologies. Um, but as I was about to say, um, so social security is a big thing. Um, the conversation about universal social security is, some, is one that we will have to have, whether it is unemployment benefits or something else. We're, it has to be more than path and poor relief from where I sit. And it has to be more than fragmented benefits that are provided. Yeah, and if we look at, for example, the national policy on poverty, it has a very limited understanding of how do we address the concerns of poverty, um, who is marginalized, uh, and, how, and what are the kinds of shocks that we need to be prepared for. Okay. That was but uh, so yeah, who do we? What I was saying, yeah, what are the kind of shocks that we need to be 
addressing at a policy level to ensure that we cover everyone so that there is limited impact for when these kinds of things happen. Because how marginalization works is that you're already on the fringes for different reasons, whether it is you're a greater subject to discrimination, whether it is you are more likely to be homeless, and then that just tips it over the scale when there is a massive shock. So what are the protections that we're putting in place? So for example, when we look at homelessness, we don't have a comprehensive response to homelessness. Um, and based on a needs assessment that we did in 2019, 20% um, of LGBT persons and, um, that responded to it, and it was over 300, um, said they'd, they had experienced homelessness or displacement at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. And then when we did our COVID-19, the impact study that we did with over 200 members of the community, it was revealed that a quarter of persons we're no longer able to pay their rent. And so if you think about that 20% and how then that is compounded by something like that, we need to have, therefore, a more comprehensive response to homelessness so that shelters are not being built when COVID happens, that shelters already exist. And in those shelters, there's training is being done to the operators of those shelters so that, for example, marginalized com communities like LGBT people feel like they can go and access those shelters. Um, and therefore are protected from, to an extent, the massive shots that something like COVID does. And I think that's what we'll have to do. Revise our systemic response to poverty um, and build in those institutions that will limit the shots. Anything to add, Julian? Only to say that to though we're talking about this program and Aisha has raised the point of people not being um, employed in ways that allow them to contribute in formal ways to then get formal assistance when it's needed, that there are some people who very much filled out those forms, very much sent in their application forms, very much did everything right and have still yet to, on August, to receive any payment. So the program was closed much earlier than had been advertised. The needs assessment that had been initially done did not seem to indicate the numbers that had in fact signed up for this program. So when the government made, and it was an incredible decision, huh? it's something to be congratulated, that the program even exists is something to be congratulated. But I don't think they understood the level of need. And by virtue of not having statistics for us to accurately see how people are being affected because many of them are informally employed, when they had to close that program, they had to close it because they were being overwhelmed by the number of people, the number of claims that were being made. The program, closed earlier than it was supposed to close and I still get uh, comments from people including people there's a particular set of people those who work in the tourism sector in particular who say they haven't received any assistance at all so that ten thousand dollars that those domestic workers would have needed those gardeners would have needed everybody would have needed there are people who have filled out all the paperwork and have yet to receive anything from it so it also challenges us to look at having a smoother delivery system if those social programs are to take place so yeah. that they can get to the people when they need to get to the people. I'm so there with you, Jody, because I, I think after once the program was announced and came on stream, beyond you know its existence and being proud of that, once I saw how those monies were being dispersed, my heart pained me. I don't know if you passed by any Western Union and saw people standing on top of each other to collect that little money. And so you know, it just it made you feel as though it was 
you know, a kind of tokenistic response. So we give you this, but we don't really matter how you get it. So, you know, people are lined up at the Western Union. So I'm like five o'clock in the morning with kids standing in line, you know, them carry them little breakfast and people sitting on there. So just this question of regard and doing it in such a way that people still feel, you know, respected and valued, you know, your dignity is intact. You know, you don't look like a beggar going to collect this little money that you're due. So certainly, you know, beyond putting these um, facilities in place, looking down the road to how it is distributed and how people are dehumanized in that process of just collecting these pittance, you know? And even to kind of, because I see Dan, um, Daniel's question about what consultation process um, happened to come up with a program like that. And what that shows me or speaks to is the kind of, what I call governing from a distance, which I consider a post-colonial relic, how governance was built for us to be governed by and not governed for. And so even if you, you have to do an emergency response and you won't reasonably be able to do widespread consultation, if the government were kind of connected in a kind of way to at the community level so that at the level of local government, they're connected to community groups and community-based organizations. So quickly get their feedback and feed that up into a process. If there was that kind of framework in how you craft policies around poverty and economic uh, disadvantage, you wouldn't even need to have to do that broad-based consultation and, and yet still it still would be um, responsive to the needs of people and I, and I think that's also one of the larger challenges that we have. How has our governance um, been structured in such a way um, so that people's needs can be catered to in the long run and I don't know that that happens. And, and that inclusivity, Glenra, as well, extending to engaging people in discussions, in this case, about how to collect those monies. You know, I'm sure there could have, you know, been other, better, more um, humanizing ways for people to access that funding. And, but that would have needed to happen with reaching out and having channels in place tied to the kind of scope of governance that allow people to influence the decision-making process. Great, thank you, um, our guests. So we're gonna pivot a little bit um, to talk about what are what will our social interactions look like from now on. So we know that crime is still an issue. People are, you know, now relaxing pro protocols. So places are starting to open up. I heard before we started, um, Jody talking about events that are happening after curfew, um, and there's a. You see that the government is making greater appeal for us as locals to sort of go on our staycations, rescue the tourist industry and stuff like that. Um, so what will our social act or what do you think our social interactions will look like from now on? We'll be doing online events. Um, we'll be will we be moving back to um, entertainment as we know it? And this question is for both Glenroy and Jodian. All right. Thanks, Glenroy. And thanks, Eleanor, for that question. I think uh, things change. There will be a post-COVID world. There will be a line of demarcation. I went to Trinidad Carnival earlier this year. I was walking up in the road, in the middle of the road, close to people, aware that the virus had not yet come into the Caribbean, but suspicious of people a little bit, but having a blast. I cannot imagine physically being next to anybody anytime soon in that same way for a carnival-like event or even any party that requires me to be next to people. 
I can't imagine, for example, going to certain restaurants. Part of what COVID did for many people is that they were at home for a very long time. If they wanted particular foods, they had to learn to make them. There are things now that I make at home that I always went out and got. And therefore, I now prefer my version of it. My friends and I were having a conversation about pizza, for example, where we say we can't justify ordering pizza anymore because when you have pizza dough at home and you can make pizza dough and I have mozzarella cheese and I have oregano and I can sit there and I don't have to wait for the pizza to come and I have to cuss and say, Lord, I'm getting lost. And I'm ordering food online and have to get bad and say the food don't come. There are real fundamental changes in the way that we see food, for example, that we see exercise. I mean, I see Danny here saying we all tried to make it, but we can't speak to the success. It's true. Everybody had different levels of skills coming into this, but many people tried for the first time. I know friends that went and got pots because their house never had pots before. Their house is a place to put on clothes, shower and go out to eat. So they got pots and they got knives. It will change the, the very way Eleanor face of very confused. Like, why didn't they have a pot of them? Yeah. But, <laughs> But it does change the way that people are comfortable interacting with others. It changes the way that we are comfortable um, having sorts of conversations. I am very happy to have social distancing. I think that many women had been very, very pleased to have this space now and this built-in space where a woman did not have to guard her own physical integrity by having to have a confrontational response with a man by saying, give me space, ease up. It was a public health risk. And so people were much more willing to do that. On the other hand, though, we human beings are not meant to be at level 100 of vigilance all the time. And so when the pandemic started, we told people, wash your hands um, and wash them thoroughly, social and physical distance where you can wear masks and be vigilant about mass contamination and where you put your hands and touching your face. And people did that because when you think it's a short term decision, people make those sorts of smart choices. What you're seeing with riots going on in the United States, for example, about the right to not wear a mask and the right to um, not be part of this and the whole discussions about whether COVID-19 had been in introduced on purpose is human beings reacting in human ways. And I think that when you think of the discussions about a vaccine coming around as that helping us revert. In 2019, the World Health Organization indicated that a vaccine, what is it? it it's like the suspicion of vaccines is one of the top 10 most significant public health risks in the world. And so even this COVID-19 vaccine that we're currently developing that will help us is going to then come into a world where people are questioning all sorts of things about the way we organize and the way we interact. I think things fundamentally change from this point onward. And I am not quite sure if we have even seen the tip of the iceberg into all the various areas that we have to address. I mean, so for me, um, uh, I, I agree with how it kind of changes the orientation that we have. But, it's, but then I also kind of think about how as, there's always this thing about Jamaica, I find our culture quite um, duplicitous in a way. So we have like policies or general precepts that we all agree to, but at the same time, just like oh God, I got to them and people are great rules. I feel like we will always have the informal and the underground. And I think marginalized communities 
exist in the underground in different kinds of ways. So for example, queer party spaces kind of already existed in the underground. And so even when curfew was still on and it was still strict, people were hiding and having these parties. And so the question is, what does that therefore mean in a new world where the underground will exist and, that, and the new component of the underground is hiding and sneaking and getting those parties that mean way more to you when you are part of certain marginalized communities that don't share space in the same way that the ordinary, um, the rest of society does. Because for a lot of people, and I can speak for myself as a, as, a, as a gay manager maker, parties are your introduction into the community and introduction into a world, um, into a safe space that you need to be a part of to kind of vacate from a kind of homophobia that you have to deal with in different ways on a daily basis. And those parties meant so much to people and not having those parties um, in a living with family members who have certain biases. And so the parties mean even much more. And some of us can unlike can online, but you can't necessarily party online when you live and I think that is store sell. So with that reality, I think a part of it is while at the surface of a level of you know the rest of society this change will happen, I, I it's kind of difficult for me to say the extent to which the underground scenes and those marginalized spaces will equally um, become as what was I going to say? Equally, kind of whether, whether that kind of sense of difference will filter down into those spaces. I mean, there was a party the other day where it was shorts and masks. So, you know, it will happen. But the extent to which it will, um, will differ because of what these spaces mean to different communities of people. Um, Thanks, Glenroy. Um, there's a really sorry, my there was a truck and then I moved and then the internet connection became stable, so I moved back. Um so Jody and, and Glenroy spoke about some very interesting and important things a while ago. Um is in terms of how humans are wired to to behave and in some cases how we are forced to behave based on our, our specific um reality. But in terms of a post-COVID world and in terms of the impacts that are gonna come um, as a result of all the locking down and the isolations and all of those things that we are called to do you now to protect our public health, there's going to um, be undoubtedly a surge in other chronic health issues. And one of these is gonna be mental health um, issues. So based on what has been done or based on what's being done or being proposed to get done, uh, do you think, uh, Jodian, that we have done enough to ensure that our people are supported um, during this time to prevent any of these future um, issues that we are looking that we are looking at? And how will we fare when so many do not have healthcare access? Oh my gosh, that's such a huge question and one that we tried to deal with on the morning agenda a few days ago. We were talking about uh, the mental health impacts of COVID nineteen. Many people understand COVID-19 to be something that interrupts their money, but they don't see it as interrupting their mental health and giving like serious mental health challenges and having serious mental health impacts. We live in a society where mental illness is deeply stigmatized. 
even having a conversation about being stressed about COVID-19 is one that asks you to open to a level of vulnerability that Jamaican society often does not provide. But it's a, something where everybody's income is being affected. Everybody is seeing the impacts. Women and girls are seeing the impacts uh, on different levels. We're having discussions about increased rates uh, of molestation and incest in Jamaica with media reports saying that that's happening even more. People just having to be inside in their homes for long periods of time meant they couldn't go to the gym, they couldn't exercise, some people hadn't had a physical hug in months. These are the sorts of things that are going to be long-term consequences of COVID-19 from a mental health perspective. But that doesn't even then start contemplating some of the long-term impacts of contracting COVID-19 itself, with some mm. reports being that individuals have brain fog, for example, or are unable to physically operate in the way that they did before. That's a mental health impact that comes from now contracting COVID-19 and having long-term recovery. I don't think anybody was prepared for that. And I don't think our mental health system, even before this, so going back to now things that Glenn Roy has spoken of, even before this, we didn't have these things in place. All COVID does is expose the gaps, the significant gaps. We had a discussion a few days ago on the show where for the first time people found out that when free healthcare came on board, free, oh, right, the mental total trauma. I read that document, there are several more of them. It's in the chat that just got put up right there. When we had um, the conversation about free healthcare, meaning that people could go to um, facilities, many people didn't know that that free healthcare meant both physical and mental health. They understood you could go to KPH if you broke your leg. They didn't understand that you also had access to mental health resources. And I think that there is nobody who is prepared at the end of all of this to deal with just the incalculable toll of mental health and at different levels. What's the mental health impact on a five-year-old who's just starting to make social bonds at school and they're, they're not going to school for ABCs now. They're, I mean, they're not going to school to learn any major information. They're going to hug and play ABCs and play with their friends. What's the mental impact on somebody at sixth form who is hoping to move to university and have that sort of a dorm experience? What's the mental impact on a pep um, student who's going into high school for the first time? What's the mental health impact on a new mother? What's the mental health impact on people who've lost family members and friends and children during this time? I don't think we yet understand just the scope and I don't think we have the resources to deal with it. Yeah. So we definitely need to be looking at some, some longer term solutions and reform of our public and um, social health systems to, to pretty much guide us through what's gonna come after COVID. All right, um, so Aisha and Jody, now this, this is your time to go back and forth about what we were talking before. So UN Secretary General, um, a few, it was probably a month or so ago, he had written um, on the impacts of COVID on women specifically. So he cited, for example, loss of income as many low-skill jobs have been cut. So we're talking about um, domestic workers being helpers and all of, the, all of, all of those informal um, jobs. He spoke about domestic abuse. He spoke about still having to work and maintain the home where their male co counterparts lost jobs. But there is such a wide intersection here 
And um, I wonder if we're able to quantify the impacts between genders and within gender. So when we, so when we talk about the impacts to women, are we able to, to speak to the impacts of, on rural, rural women versus urban? Are we able to speak to the impacts on poor rural women? How, how, how far down can we go with this conversation about the impacts on women? I think for it to, to make sense, for it to be valid, we have to drill all the way down. Um, recognizing you know, that women is not a homogeneous group. So even when we talk about the impacts on women, we have to look at the different segments of that population and then intersectionalities, you know, mm -hmm. black women versus white women, black gay women versus white gay women. Um, I think failure to do that means that we mask the, the truth of the disparity and the impacts on each group or subgroup of that um, wider group. Um, in early on in the pandemic, I remember seeing um, uh, an ad put out by an agency in Indonesia that was telling women to wear makeup during lockdown, um, to not ask their husbands for help with cooking, um, to you know speak less. Uh, I think that kind of did not make six. Um, you, you know it happens, but then when you see it formally put out there like that, you're like, whoa, wait. Um, that for me was was kind of summation of this huge reality and existence in women's experience of just being dehumanized and othered in a way that makes you almost insignificant because you are in a household um, where you're now being cautioned against being too much, being, being too present, being outspoken, because that could lead to you being um, abused, being physically abused, and then you'd have caused it upon yourself. And this has happened and has been happening in several places across the world. Um, during this pandemic and before in the US, they spoke about the increased rates um, of calls to, to police stations to report domestic abuse, um, similarly in, in France. But in some instances in other countries, what we see is direct efforts on the part of government to respond to that by putting formal responses in place. The same has happened in Jamaica, where the, 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 the numbers have spiked. However, we have not captured that data. Um, police, you know, they, 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 JCF and other related entities have not been um, doing any kind of analysis and, and capturing of that information in a way that would make us be, allow us to be able to make sense of it. Who, the persons who have been supporting, however, are the civil entities, right? Civil organization entities. So I know, for instance, Woman Inc., who some of you might be familiar with, has been supporting women um, who have called in to say I'm being abused and I need to get out of the house. And these women are putting women in their own house to safeguard them, right? Taking them out of their homes and sheltering them in, in their homes to say, hey, stay here. But the fact is, at the end of that, women have to go back into these domestic, um, into these violent situations. We, so, you know, issues around the shelter situation in America, we have one um, shelter grossly insufficient you know that is something that we need to to to, to, to sort out um because as we have agreed this is not the end all and be all of the pandemic it's not the worst of it just yet we talk about the re rebuilding and rebounding which the the un has reminded us will take years to start through like countries have regressed so far and undone all of the development that we've seen in the last two decades or so all the sdgs are at risk all of these sustainable development goals now hinge on our response mechanisms climate change responses um will have to you know be com completely overhauled 
to make sense as well. So one of the things that we're now more certain of than ever is the need for gender and, and women's issues. And, and I say gender, bearing in mind that I don't want Mario um, Glenroy Glen school me, um, the non-binary, you know, components of it as well. So that all of those issues and all of the, the needs and rights of these vulnerable populations are integrated into all planning at all levels. Um, COVID-19, and I think it was confirmed recently, COVID-19 won't be the bane of the world's existence. Now the climate change will be inequality because all of these issues, all of these pandemics and crises are now being exacerbated by the existing inequality. And in this case, if we're not um, prudent in addressing this, anything that comes hereafter is going to be 10 times worse. Yeah. Being exacerbated by and it's also exacerbating the inequalities. Of course, of course. Anything to add, Jody? With regard to the part of the question about the drilling down and making sure that we have data for individual subsets of women, especially as they're impacted. I'll go back to what I was talking about mm -hmm. earlier in different categories of women, like sex workers, for example, and disaggregating information about them in particular, and how difficult it will be to get information about particular sets of women. Um, there is also the challenge, therefore, of not only urban-rural, which in a country like Jamaica gives you a very different sort of experiences, but even where in the urban areas you live. Norbrook and Tivoli don't have the same sorts of urban experiences. It's a discussion about wealth and privilege. Can you go to particular hospitals during this time? Are you assured of medical care? Can you call your doctor friend and say, hi, I need you to find out a ventilator for my uncle or my cousin and have a different sort of health outcome. It's not having to depend on health facilities that may not have been set up for you, but it's questions of not only access, but of our knowledge that the access is needed. Poor disabled women, for example, need different sorts of help than comfortable disabled women in, rural, in urban areas. It's having to now go to granular levels on this that we're going to be challenged with in COVID-19 because everybody is going to be compelled to come up with a one-size-fits-all. It's easy to put a lid on a bow on it and say, this is our plan, yay. But women have been impacted in various ways and different sets of women have been impacted. I'll only go through, for example, in the guidance sent out by the, the United Nations. If you are a woman, for example, and in a country like Jamaica, where you have um, difficult relationships with various groups, if you are a Rastafari woman, for example, who believes in a certain way of life, does our shelter system allow for you to then practice your religion? Are, are, are we taking care of individuals who may need different sorts of help and assistance and require of the state more? I don't think that we have that information. I don't think that we are disaggregating that sort of information to help these sets of people. So we don't even know the data. We don't, we're not making data-driven decision making right here, so because we're just guessing, like, women are affected. Someone, yeah, there's no data. Somebody is affected somewhere. We're not quite sure. And so we're not able to put in place strategies to help these different sets of people because we don't know what they need.
And, and there's so much to be said. Um, I, was, I was thinking that one and a half hour would be a lot of time, but maybe not enough. Um, but, you know, just kind of piggybacking on that and something Glenroy said earlier um, about marginalized people being forced further underground and being further silenced during this pandemic. Um, and that has all implications, not just for that group, but for the wider population, because if people are not comfortable to come forward to report, you know, um, cases of abuse, or in this case, um, COVID um, occurrences, then that puts all of us at risk. And so it says then that there is greater harm being done to the wider population by silencing and othering these populations. Right. Um, beyond that, what, what Jody just said, you know, the worsening and the widening of that gender pay gap between men and women, the women now being forced to spend, um, having been laid off, to going to resources and savings that they would have amassed over a period of time, meager, more meager resources than men in a lot of instances. And what we see now to be a, a feminization or a worsening case of feminization of poverty globally. Um, we, and, and, and in that case, you know, climate change and other man-made um, situations which will worsen this, these experiences. We see in, in Zimbabwe where they predict that six out of every 10 persons will face severe hunger in coming months. You know, in India, where rural populations, um, rural workers had to walk for miles to get back home, and because of lack of social distancing, the spread of the disease in those spaces. In Brazil, similar occurrences. Um, you know, and in Jamaica, our own experiences, which sadly are not documented often enough. And I think one of the things that we need to do as a kind of takeaway of, from this conversation is to make a more concerted effort to document these stories and experiences of these people who do not have the platform to speak or are not invited to speak why not um you know given that that sense of i have a right to speak on my experience and it's a valid and legitimate experience and where we can kind of shed light on those stories in a way that would give them some more credibility and supposedly get some more action around it we have to do that um because those truths are, are valid and those experiences are legitimate just to say I need to get this question in, but this, this truck is, is not giving me a chance to be successful. Um, this whole issue of marginalization, um, it comes up a lot in conversations. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I specifically invited Glenroy, because I think we've, if I, if I, if I should Google um, COVID-19 and women, I'm going to find a lot of information. Um, and I've been trying weeks on end to try to, to, to search up just that, just, you know, um, information on COVID-19 or climate change on LGBT, and there's literally nothing. So I wanted, I wanted Glenroy to just highlight for us um, in terms of the lived experiences of LGBT, LGBT people in Jamaica. Um, so we're talking about homelessness, we're talking about LGBT youth um, who we know already have poor health-seeking behaviors, one, because of the discrimination, and two, because so many of them live so close to the poverty line or even below it. Um, what about them? What, what, what should the response look like for the LGBT community? I mean, so for me, it goes back to um, kind of where I started and where, what we've been saying that um, all COVID does is um, show us the problems with inequality. Um, and like I had mentioned before, 
um, 20% of the community have experienced homelessness and displacement um, and COVID compounds that. When you think about um, experiences with workplace discrimination, if I can, let us just pull up um, some of what we got from our recent uh, study. Where is that? What um, you think? Glenray, one second. How much percent did you say was suffering from homelessness? 20? Yeah. 20% had, um, had been homelessness or displaced at some point in their life. Um, I mean, when we think about like experiences of bullying and experiences of violence, so three quarters of the respondents to the 2019 needs um, assessment said they had experienced violence, um, and then employers need to be da, 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 um, many persons experience workplace discrimination as well. It's improving with um, new forms of work, or rather new employers coming in, so like with the EPO industry, um, they're more likely to have employment poli um, inclusive policies at their workplace, but these are some of the challenges that exist from before. And when we think about um, what we do for these kinds of communities, it's, for me, it's twofold. From the perspective of the advocate, it's what Aisha has been saying. We need to get these stories to the levels of the policymakers, and we're doing some of that now at J5. But that needs to be happening not just from one entity. It needs to be happening um, in a broader way. We need to be getting them to understand what the experiences of the community are. Um, and they also need to be receptive to getting the experiences of not just the LGBT community, but different communities of people so that that can influence how they make and craft policy. Um, because the challenge is when you have criminalized populations, for example, like sex workers, um, there's only so much unknown that you can do. Because um, when, when a sex worker um, is mistreated by one of our clients, um, there's a limit to what can be done um, within the legal framework for her to kind of enforce that. She can't enforce the contract legally. So her options are then to create a system of maybe stealing her phone um, to barter for payment. And, that, and depending on the police officer that comes on stream, that can be deadly for the sex worker, especially if she's trans. Um, and what happens to a, to a trans woman who does sex work when she ends up within the prison system. So how we criminalize certain kinds of activities, whether or not we have laws like vagrancy laws that criminalize loitering, um, are, are kinds of challenges that people who exist on the margins face. Um, face. And when we don't have legislative framework that prevents discrimination, then when a community experiences discrimination at different points in their lives, including at the workplace, including when seeking housing, um, if you don't address that, no matter what, you, your COVID response is complicated or are affected by that. So you create a shelter, but the people at the shelter aren't trans-friendly. The people at the shelter um, make the experience intolerable for you. Then you're actually not providing for the community. And that goes for all marginalized communities. There needs to be, therefore, a response, a, a response to um, whether it is COVID or any other tragedy that is sensitive to the experience of different communities. And there has to be an overall orientation to substantive equality. Our government likes to say things that we do not discriminate against the LGBT community broadly, but then let's talk about, it, it's beyond that. It's beyond saying I don't discriminate. It's what are the policies that I'm crafting that at least demonstrates an acknowledgement of the challenges that people face so that they are prepared, that they're able to be counted and be a part of our response. And I don't know that our government, that our policymakers and politicians 
thinking that sort of way and it's gonna take a lot of work to get them there and so the onus is on some of us who are advocates to give them the kind of information to get them there but then the, the work is also on them to take that information once they've gotten it and bring it to the table and make a difference despite whatever political pressures may exist from other communities but for me it's always this it's much easier to say we're not discriminating against you as opposed to we're legalizing you. So even if you're not gonna be criminalized by virtue of the Bogri law, it's always important to remember that, for example, queer women are not criminalized. Sex between women is not criminalized in Jamaica. So therefore, you don't have a basis to say you won't create a shelter that is LGBT and trans inclusive because the law doesn't prevent you from doing that. And so the, the work to improve political will is a big part of it and that and that's difficult work because you can't force somebody to want to do something. You can only impress upon them the need to do it, but then if they don't want to do it, they don't want to. So it's an uphill battle, but it will only come from our communities stepping up and being able to engage them in a more consistent way. I feel like I was rambling a little at the end. <laughs> You're muted, um, dear. That's the point, that's what I was saying thanks, and that you segued into my final question um, in terms of what is it that we need to do going forward. But just to bring it, just to bring it um, together and to the central point of climate change, it's here and by the looks of things, it's, it's just gonna get worse. I don't think we're, we're strong enough yet as a global society to do what we need to do to, to, to stabilize the impacts at this point. So I just want us to kind of put, put the thoughts together that we've expressed um, since the start of this conversation and just um, summarize for our listeners about what is, it, what is the, the real way forward because we have COVID-19, we, we are living through some of the more short-term impacts now, but as Jodian pointed out, there's gonna be longer-term impacts um, for different groups. Um, Aisha spoke to the fact that women have been fighting this fight for a long time, and we are now seeing, even more than ever since COVID, the levels of inequality that we have existing in our society, and also with the LGBT community, as Glenn pointed out. So what is it? How can we put this all together now in one, in, in, in some sort of a grand um, framework that will address the issue of a disaster um, and then make that inclusive for everybody who will be impacted? And I'm throwing it out to everybody. Um, I think. I think people who know me well enough know my politics. And so um, my kind of unfiltered response to that would be to just dismantle all systems of predatory capitalism, which are underpinned by patriarchy. Um, and so just done with that system. I think we have proven time and time again that that is the most, um, the strongest driver of everything bad with society. Um, I think we have to recognize how these kind of harmful and toxic interpretations of masculinity, harmful masculinities, you know, um, drive and, and, and fuel the, the, this idea 
of, of success and power and, and global domination and, and in that process, um, widening the gap between the haves and the have-nots, um, taking away women's rights and access and silencing and disempowering women as a result of that. Uh, I think we also have to reimagine leadership. Uh, you know, we continue to see leadership as, 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 as male um, and, and male in a way that is devoid of feeling and empathy. Um, I you know, when, when Glenmuir said just now, we need that kind of um, policy reform and legislative reform to support um, the, the inclusion of marginalized populations. Yes, we need that, but I think we also have to, we also want leaders who are empathetic, like on them own right and by them own, you know, um, consciousness of what is good and what is right. Just, just do what is honorable. Respect people for who they are, and and, and give people space to be. And I, I know, I know, it just sounds fluffy, but I think beyond all the things that we want to see on paper, if we if we were able to redefine leadership, re redefine um, how we constitute and view, um, you know, what is good and acceptable and right outside of these narrow definitions, then we'd be a lot farther ahead. In, in, in shifting this. There are opportunities, however, um, if we talk climate change, which have been presented as a, a, um, around COVID, and we see some countries taking direct steps to tap into those, um, opportunities to rebuild in, in a different way, opportunities to um, engage more people in, in these conversations and, and these processes of rebuilding, because as we have all agreed, one thing we're more certain of now than ever is that there's a big systemic problem of inequality um, across races. And I think the um, protests in, in the US would have also, the BLM marches would have also helped to, you know, kind of strengthen this, this argument around systemic inequality and, and ensuring that everything that we do from here on addresses that in a meaningful way. Some countries, some leaders not ready for that. Like they feel like, you know, we, we need some more, we need some time to catch up, but we see progress being made in, in some of the more advanced jurisdictions where people and the mindsets are a little bit different. Scandinavian countries are on board with that. New Zealand, we know, you know, which, which had a really amazing response to COVID um, because they have a female leader. Um, and the, 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 the reports show that the six countries with female leaders, presidents, prime ministers fared the best in COVID response. Six to those countries across the world. Um, so I think there's something to be said about the way in which women lead, the way in which we connect the dots and include people in these processes. Climate change has to be on top, on the top of that list, um, because that is going to be the other big thing which threatens to dismantle the world as we know it. Um, but I think you know, to, to kind of sum it up, or sum all of it up, the the the, the crux of it, I think, is in. Um, giving people pride of place in all the conversations that we have, recognizing that people by virtue of being human beings have a right to be here, have a right to be um, included and invested in ways that honor them, in, in ways that empower them, and in so doing empower the wider society. Thanks, Aisha. Who's going next? I, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in here to to say that climate change, as you have said, Mario, is here, is real. And many climate change activists have said that COVID-19 and the immediate lockdowns that were put in place and a global coordinated effort shows that we have not yet started tackling climate change. That if we were able to do that within the space of weeks, it shows that we are well aware of the impacts of climate change and we have not started taking the sort of dramatic ne um, steps necessary. 
in the Paris Agreement where we say 1.5 to stay alive with other countries saying, well, two, not so bad, three, not so bad either. You have Caribbean leaders like me, Amart, they're saying the Caribbean will not survive. We cannot afford for there to be flexibility. So we're already seeing where hard steps have been taken for COVID-19 that demonstrates other areas where we have not taken hard steps. We have not done the sorts of things we need to do. This is also 2020. This is the year where we started off with Australian fires and thought that was horrific and then just saw a steady decline in all the things that could happen. Murder hornets, come on. Global riots, come on. Like, and so we're looking at a month, for example, of July, where we're seeing earthquakes, or not earthquakes, rather, we're seeing hurricanes happen. And we have uh, um, one hurricane now that upgraded itself to category one far before had been projected and now will be impacting the south co um, the, the eastern side of the United States in July. Not August, not September, July. So Caribbean countries like ours have to think, how do we navigate through COVID-19, the inequalities, the clear gaps that we have, the amount of money, oh, Saharan dust, there you go. Mm. The, the, the clear inequalities that have been highlighted and also the money that we would have taken out to deal with COVID-19 may not be in the kitty to deal with other emergencies. Jamaica had an earthquake at the very beginning of this year with people being told you have to prepare for earthquakes and they don't come in a season like hurricanes. But what do you do in a country where COVID-19 has meant that the liquor can't be if you could have buy now to stock up for an earthquake or, or, or for a hurricane is now the corned beef that you're eating because you need to stay alive to go to work. What happens if all the income or your extra savings that you would have had has now been decimated because of this? And that's on a personal level. On a government level, we're using the Disaster Risk Management Act and having to think about navigating through COVID-19 with an act that is primarily set up to deal with more short-term emergencies and disasters with a fund that is meant to deal with that. We don't have a pandemic fund and we don't have limitless resources. So we have to start thinking through now climate change for many people is this big nebulous, oh, you know, years and years and years. But we are seeing that significant impacts of climate change will affect countries like Jamaica by about 20, 2030, with significant impacts across the entire region by 2050. That's 10 years from now. So it can't be a long-term decision-making sort of thing. COVID-19 means that we have to start thinking day by day because we're watching off the coast of Africa, systems come and we have to think to ourselves, if an earth, a hurricane comes in the next two weeks and earthquakes can come at any time and Saharan dust can happen and there can be all these things, we could have multiple disasters. It would be a crisis if we did not think through how different sets of people would be impacted so that we could, before the crisis strikes, have some sort of plan in place because when the crisis starts, we will not have that wiggle room to start planning. Thank you, Jody. General? I think for me, um, what I kind of feel like it boils down to is the orientation of leadership that we, we are working with now. And, and, and I would like to believe that it is slowly changing. You know me, I try to be optimistic about things because otherwise we're going to um, and, and so I think about, for example, the ban on single-use plastic, the ban on styrofoam, those little things that are happening um, 
that are slow but key change. And I think that only happens when citizens are empowered or forced leaders to change how they're operating. And I think, therefore, we have to get more people to be uncomfortable with the way things are happening. And therefore, those of us who know have a duty, I believe, to inspire those people in whatever ways we can by using language that is uh, familiar to them, by using the dance hall where we can, because I, I, I fully believe in using those artifacts of our culture to get people to understand what the problems are. We need to use all the tools we have to get people to be discomforted by what is happening so that it, it, it can be they can push our leaders to make real change or even to push out the ones that are stubborn and don't care and push in the ones that will be responsive to their needs, right? And, um, of course, there are systemic problems. So we also need to think about the ways in which our system needs to change. And if that would even get the people to start thinking about and, and push them to, to kind of redefine because even our constitutional arrangements, they were created with us in mind and our realities. So even things like those, we need to get people to be uncomfortable with it. And that means giving them the information and working with them to decide what is right for them. Not us telling them what we think will work for them, but getting people to that point. And so there's that disparity in knowledge where the 17% of us who have access to tertiary education, we have all of it. And then there's a large majority of people who the word climate change doesn't mean anything to them in their daily lives as them go about bullies for making straight straight everybody at the yard. They need to kind of they need language to get that to mean something to them. And I think that is our responsibility because we alone now can get the leadership for change. We need that larger block of people. Um, and it also requires us to then suspend what we think is right. It requires us to say, this is the reality to a larger mass of people. And if they don't think what we are suggesting will work, we also need to be prepared to release what we think is, is best for the country. Kind of, we want to live here. Um, even if we have fellow science and academics and all of those people, um, none of that is set in stone. And that may have, and that will change according to different realities. Mm -hmm. And we compromise and push the needle forward. And then now, when they go, when they take one step instead of the tree where we want, we'll go back to them again and kind of get them to understand why we did one way or so in the first place. And they, so that is what will have to happen, kind of working with people to understand why these issues are issues and then mobilizing those people to change leadership. And that's what is lacking because as I've said, the system governs from afar and the system thrives on governing from afar because then there are people who, because everybody, everybody they're far, their eyes won't see everything where they are. Mm -hmm benefit from governing and having those shadowy parts of governance so they can do what they want to do and all of the corruption scandals that come up now are proof of that in my mind so we need to get more people interested in governance to get what we want all right thank you glenroy and thanks to all of our guests it's time to wrap up so thank you to everyone for joining us for this week's covid chat i wish we had some more time to continue this discussion um, but i think we all learned a lot i've tried to I was trying to put take three points from the discussion, but as usual, I have way more than three. Um, so I'm just going to summarize as best as I can. Um, we need to think about human rights in the context, not just um, of right to vote, etc., as Glenroy would have said, but extending it to economic, social, and cultural rights, which we don't really discuss. Um, we need to be looking at crisis responses that are more sensitive towards our marginalized communities and we all spoke about the importance of creating a stronger social safety net for both 
formal and informal economies. Of course, with COVID-19, we have to consider the economic impact as well as the impacts on mental health, which we spoke about a little bit. And we need more data in order to craft our responses to marginalized groups so that they can be more empowered. Finally, something Jody says that has definitely stuck with me is that our COVID-19 response has showed us that we have not even begun to address climate change. And I think for us as the JCCYC, this is something that we have to take into consideration when crafting our mandate going forward. So thank you. And thanks, Eleanor. And thanks again to, to our guests. Our next COVID transition will be on Sunday, August 9. And at that time, we'll be looking at COVID-19 and Jamaica. So we'll pretty much be wrapping up um, all of the sessions into one conversation, looking at impacts, solutions, and future prospects. So by the end of next week, Sunday, we should have a clear pathway, Eleanor and Daniel, to what our advocacy is going to look like for the JCCYC. Right, so if you missed today's discussion or you want to re-listen, share it with a friend, or actually listen, listen to any of the previous discussions, we have our podcast, our COVID chat podcast. The link is in the chat and you can listen to it on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, to search for it wherever you listen to your podcast. It's called COVID chat and you should be able to find it. So once again, follow our social media pages and thank you again for joining us. Have a great Sunday.